0: Good evening. Oh, that's better. I better tone it down a little bit. You know, I'm always amazed when I have the opportunity to come back. I think this makes 16 years. I know I look older, but I don't feel a day older. (laughs) And you know, over the years, quite a number of our loved ones have gotten their permanent promotion into the presence of the Lord. Every year I expect that it's going to be me, but I keep, uh, keep on keeping on. We're going to have the opportunity over this weekend to look at one of the most amazing books in the Bible and in the New Testament. The book of Jude is called the least studied book in the New Testament. In fact, there are many believers who really know nothing about the book of Jude except for the last two verses, which is called the doxology. And we'll have some interesting things to say about that when we get to it. The book of Jude is a book that is particularly relevant to the time in which you and I are living in. And so I chose the topic or the title of Essential Elements of spiritual warfare, but we're probably going to look at spiritual warfare a little bit different than what you might expect, and I've been studying this little book. I've taught it before. I think the last time I went through it was at a camp in, uh, Susan was reminding me, I think 2013. Um, I've taught it a couple of times before, but you know, I've been studying on this book for weeks now, and today Nan had to come into town and pick up all the notes and do a few other things, and I sat the whole day studying this book and jotting down, if you could see my notes, I have, you have nice clean copies, I hope. My notes look like that. And I keep adding and adding and adding, and I finally just put it all down And I said, I can't even get through all the information that I have. I might as well just come to a stop. There's no way that I could even cover during the course of our time together the notes that I have in the printed pages that you have before you. I hope you have a a copy. We will be covering quite a few things that are not in those notes, so you might want to keep a pen handy. You may want to jot some things down. Um, I'm not really sure where our course of study and our time spent is going to lead because I don't know what the Holy Spirit has in mind until he starts directing me. Uh, I do want to begin before we take uh, time for a word of prayer to just thank those of you who keep us in your prayers and your thoughts Uh, Particularly when we go on mission trips overseas, we just came back from an amazing trip to India. We had the opportunity to go into Nagaland, which if you're not familiar, is way up in the north and east. It's actually only connected to India by a little strip of land, but it is considered Indian territory. The people there are tribal people the Naga people, there are about 26 different Naga tribes. We work in particular with the Yimchunger tribe. Um, This last trip was one of the most productive and amazing that we've had in quite some time. Uh, Nan and our granddaughter Emily, who just turned 19, went with us and another young lady, a friend of hers by the name of Kyla. So Nan and Emily and Kyla stayed at the Bethel Children's home in Tunsang, and they ministered to the orphan girls that are at the children's home while I went deeper into the mountains. Uh, I went to a remote, remote village. It's so remote that there's only been a road to it in about the last year. Uh, we had funds that were donated to build a church in a village that needed a church. And if you know anything about Nagaland, Christianity spread through Nagaland since the late 1800s when a missionary by the name of Clark went in there and began to evangelize. They told us that he walked 160 days to get to the remote area. If you ever saw Nagaland or even pictures, you would know that it's all up and down, some of the steepest country in the world. But his work planting the seed of the gospel took root and spread like wildfire through that whole area of what were at that time headhunter tribes. And the gospel has been so powerful in Nagaland that they consider themselves to be a Christian people. And so we were able to dedicate a church. I then had two days to spend teaching the pastors from about three or four surrounding tribes uh, as they came together in that remote mountain place. After that, I went to the theological college. And I don't name some places and some areas that we go into on purpose because, number one, you wouldn't know where they are anyway. Uh, number two, persecution is increasing around the world. Christians are suffering tonight. Christians in Pakistan are being severely persecuted. Many of you know Fassel, who is often here with us, and of course Kerry uh, is here, but Fassil is in Pakistan, and there has been tremendous persecution going on in Pakistan right now. So I try to be a little bit careful about mentioning the names of people or the names of places, but I was able to go to a theological college where they have about 70 or 80 students, and we were able to provide funds for 13 new students to start going to this theological college. We were able to provide a bonus, totally unexpected little boost to the staff that live out in this remote place and dedicate their lives to the training of these young men and women. Uh, Actually, the pastor at the church that we dedicated was a young man who I spoke at his graduation a few years ago when he graduated from the theological college. Instead of doing like most young people would do and choosing to go to a town or a city where you have at least whatever conveniences exist, he chose to go to a remote location far from anything and take up the ministry of the church there. And so the school is doing great work, and it was a wonderful thing for us to be able to provide funds for students that could not afford to go to the school to be able to go, and also to help the uh, faculty and the staff there a little bit financially. We then went to Hyderabad, India, where we met up with our longtime. Uh, friend and supporter. I've been working with PJF. Most of you, if you read any of our newsletters, will know who that is. Some of you may have met him, and uh, we met up with him. I've been working with him since 1992. Uh, He was just a young guy when I went over there in 1992 and met him. Has a tremendous ministry, a phenomenal influence over many, many churches in central India, and we were able to hold a Bible conference for 70 pastors and their wives and 40 new Bible students, and we spent three days in the Word of God just pouring over the wonderful promises and principles of God's Word from the book of 1 Peter. So we had a phenomenal trip. And uh, we do thank you. We know that many of you think of us and pray for us and lift us up before the throne of grace. And you share and you have, as it were, your fingerprints uh, and your prayers all over the success and the accomplishments of that recent trip. So coming back to the epistle of Jude, we're going to be looking at the uh, principles of uh, spiritual warfare, essential elements, of spiritual warfare. Basically, as I give it to you in your outline, it boils down to three things, uh, but I've already changed those, so you may want to uh, adapt. Know yourself, know your enemy, and know your mission. I would change that to know yourself and your mission. Uh, Jude actually does a very interesting thing. He starts the book by telling us what he wants us to do. He doesn't get around to telling us what he wants us to do till toward the end of the book. So I would give you a new three point outline know yourself and your mission, know your enemy, and then finally, know your God. Uh, in the last two verses, we have one of the most amazing statements about who God is and what he has done for us. And so I would break it down in that way. I'll give you a little bit more in the way of introduction. But before we do, let's just ask God's blessing on our time together. We pray that he will post around this facility and this gathering mighty angels because we know that the enemy is real We know that the conflict is intensifying on every front. We know that darkness is enveloping the United States of America, and that is largely because of the retreat of the light bearers. When the light bearers retreat, the darkness expands. And therefore, our challenge uh, during our time this weekend is for each of us to learn how better, as Jude says, to contend for the faith. So let's ask God's blessing and then we'll get into our study in the book itself. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before the throne of your grace, we acknowledge, we recognize our weakness, our frailty. We realize that we are up against things that are too great for us. We have an enemy that is smarter, stronger, uh, more powerful, more prevalent, We are outnumbered, we are outgunned, with the exception of the provisions of your grace. Because we have the Spirit of God dwelling within, because we have the Word of God, not only in the pages of the Bible, but in our hearts, our minds, and our souls, we are invincible. And therefore, I pray that you will buck up our strength, bolster our courage, motivate us to realize that we are not here to lose, we are not here to retreat, we are here to always be on the advance. As we open your word to this little book, so small and yet so filled with spiritual riches, our prayer is that God the Holy Spirit will set aside all of human weakness and frailty, in me as the communicator and in each and every one of the listeners. And may God the Holy Spirit perform spiritual surgery on our souls that we may become more effective in the time in which we live, contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. I would like to read for you the first four verses, which... God willing, and by His grace, we may get through in two sessions. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, While I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude summarizes the thrust of his book in that phrase, contend earnestly for the faith. It's very interesting, and we'll see this when we get to it. Uh, The word that is used there occurs nowhere else in Scripture. Scripture. Uh, Jude is a very unique book, and it's unique for a number of reasons, and I'll try to bring some of those out in addition to what you have in your notes. To start off with, let me just mention that Jude is a book of threes. Uh, I don't know if you've looked at the end of your notes, but you have a number of appendices at the end of your notes, the first of which is is the 15 sets of three, or the 15 triads in the book of Jude. Uh, I first uh, came onto this when I was reading Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum's book on Jude, and I think he had 12 uh, of the sets of three, and then I found a few extra, you know, you always have to try to add a little bit. Uh, But sets of three in the ancient world were a very common way of teaching. Um, You know, even a lot of the great uh, preachers, Charles Spurgeon and a lot of those guys, they would build their message around sets of three. There seems to be something about sets of three that is able to lodge in people's minds. We're able to grasp it, we're able to remember it, uh, and we're able then to take advantage and implement it. Paul, of course, uses it. You're familiar with his faith, hope, and love in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, but believe it or not, I've found at least, I think, six or seven different passages in Paul's epistles where he strings those three together, sometimes closely together, as in faith, hope, and love. And sometimes he'll uh, spread them out a little bit, uh, as in Romans chapter 5. If you look at Romans 5, verses 1 through 5, you might be surprised to find in that magnificent section of Scripture Faith, hope, and love. And sometimes uh, he'll change faith, love, and hope. But of course, faith always comes first. Uh, we find the same thing in the book of James. Uh, James builds his book around a threefold exhortation. In James chapter 1 and verse 19, he challenges us to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. So this was, as I say, a very common tool of teaching in the ancient world. And you'll be able to look through all of the threes. I'll uh, point out some of them as we go through. I'm not going to try to point out all 15 of them. Uh, William Barclay says that the Greek of Jude is rugged and forceful. And I would say that's uh, pretty good, except that it's probably an understatement. It is most powerful, the language that he uses. By the time Jude wrote the book, it was very likely that the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, and James, his brother, had already died in martyrdom. Now, if you read many commentaries on the book of James, you're going to find many people who are going to say, Peter copied the book of James. And we'll see the parallels between the book of or they copied the book of Jude. We'll see parallels between the book of Jude and Second Peter chapter two. Uh, However, Peter did not copy Jude. Jude copied Peter. And there's a reason for this. Uh, And the reason, I think, is uh, really many faceted. Peter was an apostle, Jude was not. Uh, Jude is writing because there's a vacuum. Uh, Jude mentions the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He talks about remembering the words of the apostles who had gone before. I think that he probably stepped possibly in almost an unwilling or reluctant way into a position of leadership because of the tremendous vacuum that had been created through persecution in the early church. And with the death of Paul, Peter, and James, uh, there would have been a great cry for strong and powerful leadership, and I believe that he stepped into that. The false teachers, uh, which is uh, really probably the bulk of the book, uh, dealing with that topic, uh, were uh, actually mentioned earlier. He says that they were uh, marked out beforehand, and we're going to find some very interesting things about just how far beforehand they were marked out. But of course, the Lord Jesus... In Matthew 7 and verse 15, and then followed by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 4 verses 1 through 3, that being followed by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 1 to 22, and 2 Peter 3 verses 2 through 4, had been warning their coming. They're coming. The savage wolves are going to come even from among yourselves, Paul said. There are going to be men who are going to rise up teaching perverse things. In other words, there would be those who would come from the outside as unbelievers. There would be those who would come from the inside who were believers, but got led astray. And that's actually what we have going on very much in the body of Christ today. Uh, There are many who were once very... Uh, clear, very sound in the word, uh, and they have since uh, drifted terribly from the truth. And then there are those who have wormed their way in from the outside uh, who are not even believers, uh, but they found out that it pays good, it gets them a lot of attention, they can sell a lot of books, and uh, so it's become a business, unfortunately, to many. Talking about the sets of three, I'll just mention, and again, this is written in your notes, that St. Patrick taught the Irish to look at the clover leaf, which is three. If you find a four-leaf clover, that's rare. That's why it's considered to be lucky for who knows what reason. But St. Patrick taught the Irish to see in the three-leaf clover a symbol of the Trinity. And he did this because they were humble and they were simple people, and he wanted to have in front of them at all times a reminder of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so as we go through the book of James, it's going to be almost like we're walking through a field of clover. We're not going to tiptoe through the clover but we'll be seeing some of the sets of three uh, that are going to come through. What I want to talk about in the time that remains, and it's rapidly dwindling, uh, is verse 1 and 2. I could spend the entire weekend on these two verses. Uh, They are forceful and rugged. They are filled with treasures and riches that unfortunately, we too often overlook. One of the things we need to be reminded of, we know, anyone who studies language knows that words have meaning. And we know that when the meaning of words begins to be tampered with, you begin to derail a culture. Uh, Cultures The way of thinking, the way of doing is built on words. Words are so very powerful. I'm sure you've heard many times that sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you. But of course, all of us know that there are words that can be spoken that can do much more damage than sticks and stones would ever do. Words have power. Words facilitate thinking. Words build common cultures. And when we begin to manipulate words, when we begin to change words, and it's going on all around us in our society today, what you basically have is a concerted effort to destroy a culture. When people no longer speak a common language, when people no longer use words the way those words have been used for generations, and language does change, language develops. Uh, There are figures of speech, for example, that we use in the United States. And if you go to Australia and you use that figure of speech, they're going to look at you like, what in the world does that mean? But then, of course, they're going to use an Aussie figure of speech, and you're going to look at them and say, That's crazy. That has no meaning at all. To them, it is filled with meaning. To us, the figures of speech that we use that have come down to us through generations and the combinations of words and so on can be very, very powerful. We need to understand that when we come to the Bible, we are dealing with a unique use of words. Uh, Ultimately, God is the author of language. People like to argue what language did they speak in the garden and what language will we speak in heaven? Well, I'm not really too worried about. I'm just worried about us being able to communicate in the present day, which if you have grandchildren, you know how difficult that becomes because they often have adapted and adopted now ways of speaking, figures of speech and phrases that are completely alien to those of us who are a little further down the track. When we come to the Bible, we need to understand that God invests words with meaning. We need to understand that words in the Bible must be interpreted within the culture of the Bible. We often hear the statement that the key to interpretation is context, and that's true. We often hear it said jokingly that the key to interpretation is context, context, context. That is also true. But unless you understand what that means, it doesn't hold much significance to you. When we say context, 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 we're talking about historical context, we're talking about cultural context, and we're talking about linguistic context. And so when we come to the Bible, we will often see words that we use today in ways other than what they may have been used in the time that the Bible was written. (laughs) Another point that we often make, the Bible must be interpreted in light of the time in which it was written, and that is so very, very true. Uh, We're going to be in the Arizona conference, which is the first weekend. I'm glad to hear that some of you are going to be there with us. Uh, First weekend in November, we're going to be studying the book of James. And in the book of James, we're going to be dealing with a topic that will probably puzzle a few people, because the theme for the Arizona conference is the salvation of the saints. And I could say to you tonight, as uh, Dr. Rodmacher used to jokingly say, and I I always loved to see the uh, reaction of the audience or whatever group he was talking to, when he would stand up and he'd say, I hope that some of you are going to get saved tonight. And of course, people would go, yes, that'd give them a, you know, kind of a warm and wonderful uh, spiritual feeling that maybe somebody's come in here tonight as an unbeliever, and they will come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, that's contained within that idea. But then he would give it a little bit of a different inference when he would say, not only do I hope that some of you get saved tonight, I'm here hoping that I will get saved tonight. Well, then, of course, everyone's scratching their head. Well, you're Dr. Rodmacher. You know, you've been a college professor. You're a brilliant Greek scholar. You're an author of many books. What in the world are you talking about? You hope you get saved. Well, he was simply utilizing the word saved in the way that it's used in the book of James. James is much misunderstood, and a lot of wrong teaching, a lot of injurious teaching comes out of the book of James because people do not realize that the word save doesn't always mean eternal salvation. The word save is used in the simple sense of deliverance, when you read in the Bible about the word saved or salvation, you should always look in the context and ask yourself, who is being saved and what are they being saved from? Well, the word save is used five times in the book of James and it is never used of eternal salvation. That may shock you. But once you begin to realize that and you begin to look at the context within which James uses that word save five times, you begin to realize he is not talking about the unbeliever coming to a saving knowledge of Christ. He is talking about erring believers and ignorant believers and weak believers being delivered from their ignorance and their error and their spiritual weakness, and we all need that, and I have to tell you, as I've been studying on the book of James, uh, it's been a real challenge to me. I have probably come under more conviction as I've opened the book of James and begun reading it, and you know, he talks about, receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. That is a statement to a believer. You say, no, wait, saving your souls is talking about eternity. Well, once again, we have to look at phrases the way they were used in the ancient world. If you rescued a child that was being swept away in a river, the common way that the Greeks would express that is you saved a soul from death because they use the word soul to refer to the life. You saved a life. We would say, for example, if a child began to run out into the street, we would say, I saved that child. No one would think that you had given that child eternal life. But we just have a little bit of a problem. We're 2,000 years from the early church, and we find it a little bit difficult sometimes to adapt to and adopt their phraseology. So. Here's your first set of three. Are you ready for the entrance to the book of Jude? Jude identifies himself three different ways. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but Jude literally in the Greek is Judas. Why do we write it as Jude and not Judas? Judas. Well, because there was a guy by the name of Judas that did something that was horrendous. He betrayed his Lord and his Savior. And therefore, we don't want to identify Judas with Judas. One is Judas Iscariot. There was another Judas among the apostles, and he was introduced uh, at uh, certain points in Scripture as Judas, not Iscariot. In other words, we don't want to mix these two up. And why is this important? Well, it's important because you have a name, and your name means something. And when you're given a name, the Hebrews believe that your name was chosen by God before you were born. They believe that God would guide the parents to name that child according to some quality or characteristic or purpose that God had for that child. I would encourage you to find the meaning of your name. Now, if you happen to be named Benedict Arnold, you may find it difficult. But I'm bringing all this up for a very important reason. Judas is only Judas if he's Iscariot. What does your name mean? Here's the point that I want to make in the very first word in this book. Your name means what your life makes it mean. It is not what someone else did with that name. It is not the reputation that someone else gave to that name. You may be named for someone great and you may ride for a lot of years in certain social circles because you carry a name that is a name that is associated with honor or courage or greatness or something else. That's not what your name means unless you invest that name with that meaning In your life. I want to challenge you to consider the meaning of your name and I want you to make your name mean something. Make your name a name that will bring honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Judas, Judas of course, Euthas in the Greek comes from Judah in the Hebrew and you'll remember Judah of course was the royal Tribe. How interesting that Judah was the fourth son of Jacob. His name means praise, and therefore a beautiful and a wonderful name. And our Jude, or our Judah, was the fourth son of Joseph and Mary. So Judas, or Jude, a bond servant, a born slave of Jesus Christ, Jude or Judas sees himself as a slave, but I think not only he, but I think his brother James also would have this in mind. Not just a slave, not just a bond servant or a born slave, but I think they invested it with a much higher meaning. And I think this is why they use this as their identification, not as many people would today. I mean, if you were, uh, Jude today, and you were the half-brother of the Messiah, you would be writing books and making millions, what I saw growing up with Jesus, what it was like growing up with Jesus. Uh, That is not the attitude that he takes. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the fact that both James and Jude were not sure about the other two brothers. There's no indication whether they believed or not. But James, the oldest of the brothers born after Mary gave birth to Jesus, Jude, the fourth of the brothers, and then at least two sisters uh, that came along. James and Jude identify themselves not as half-brothers of the Messiah, but slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, I point out this uh, Little improvement on the reference to the slave, a pierced ear slave. You'll remember the custom that was given in the ancient world, Deuteronomy 15, 17. That's not in your notes. You might want to jot it down. That was where the slave that loved his master, uh, his time of uh, remission had come, his time to be set free, but he loved his master. And he said, I want to remain under my master. And according to the law that was given to Moses, he was taken, his ear was put against the doorpost, his ear was pierced, and the pierced ear and the ring that went into it actually became a symbol of what was known as the pierced ear slave. Now, everything in scripture, relates to the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, when we read in Psalm chapter 40 and verse 6, and it's speaking about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, my ears you have opened is a lousy translation. Literally, it says, my ears you have pierced. When the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world, he spoke to the Father. And his first words to the Father were sacrifice and offering you would not accept in the book of Hebrews, the translation taken from the Septuagint, a body you have prepared for me. Why? Because he had to have a human body to go to the cross in our place. But the Hebrew of Psalm 40 and verse 6, my ears you have pierced. You'll read it as my ears you have opened. So Judas, not Iscariot, rather Judas, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And of course, brother of James would have immediately identified him. Critics, once again, try to make this another Jude found somewhere else in the Bible, but we know this is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ and the only one in the New Testament mentioned as the brother of of James James the author of the book of James notice to those who are called sanctified by God the father and preserved in Jesus Christ these three words and phrases are progressive i want you to see the progression there is a calling and as a result of the calling there is sanctification and as a result of sanctification there is Preservation, or what we would call security. The three words are connected. You are only sanctified because you responded to the call and because you are sanctified, meaning set apart, the same root word as the word holy, you are secure. You are kept in Christ Jesus. I'm going to talk a lot about the call. I'm probably not going to get to it, Uh, In this particular section. Uh, Some of you will have in your English translation, do any of you have called, beloved, and preserved? Some of you will have called, beloved, and preserved. Uh, Some of the texts have uh, that variant, but really uh, they relate to the same thing. To be sanctified is to be set apart. Now I'm going to use a lot of marriage terminology. And the reason I'm gonna use marriage terminology is because the doctrine of election is predominantly not understood in this country today because it's been divorced from marriage terminology. When a young man finds a young woman and makes a proposal to that young woman and she responds, they become engaged or in the ancient world they would say betrothed, she was sanctified. She was set apart. She was set apart to that young man. And she was to be guarded and protected for that young man. And because she was set apart, she was also his beloved. Do you see the connection? Set apart, beloved. I think that's probably why the variant has crept in there. And we're going to look at that uh, a little bit more as we go along. But I want to I'm, I'm trying to be mindful of the fact some of you have worked all day and I do not want to uh, wear you out. I'm going to move on uh, a little bit and at least get into verse 2 and we're going to go a little further on this when we get into our next session. We're not done by any means, don't worry. We still have another set of threes. Notice the three called sanctified, preserved. The word preserved, we're going to run into the word tereo, I think it comes up five or six times in the book of Jude. It means to guard something. Essentially, the basic meaning to guard, to protect, to keep. We are kept in Christ Jesus. Paul, of course, uh, being a master of language and a master of grammar, invested the simple little phrase in Christ with vast doctrinal and theological meaning. Uh, If you don't understand at least some of what Paul means when he uses the phrase, in Christ, and by far his most popular phrase, in Christ, that little phrase contains a trainload, a shipping container ship, if you've ever seen how big they are, full of New Testament significance, what it means to be in Christ. Well, here Jude, who no doubt read the epistles of Paul, has told us that we are preserved, we are kept, we are safe in Christ. Christ Jesus. Why are we safe and secure in Christ Jesus? Because we are sanctified. What does it mean that we are sanctified? We are the objects of the infinite and the unfailing love of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you and I could ever get a hold of, get a grasp on, wrap our minds around, however you want to say it, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. When Paul uses that phrase, he is talking about something that is of such vast spiritual scope that even his great mind, with all the revelation that he had been given, was still incapable of grasping the significance of the love of Christ. So much, my friends, that is taught today diminishes the love of Christ. So much that is taught today militates against the love of Christ. Once you have trusted Christ as your Savior, whether you realize it or not, you just accepted a proposal. And when you accept that proposal, God the Father sets you apart for a very special purpose. You have now become not only a child of God, a son of God, a member of the royal family, a believer priest, but you have become a member of the bride. I'm going to use an illustration of the call uh, in our next session, and I think it will help to illustrate this. But if you can, whether through some movie you saw, some book you read, or hopefully even a grasp of new testament scripture if you have some idea of the love that christ has for you he proved it on the cross when he paid the penalty of our sins he proved it on the cross when he died for those who would reject him remember we read down there in verse 4 they deny they t- twist and distort the grace of god and they deny his lo- the love of christ They deny the Lord who bought them, as Peter says. We'll probably see that tomorrow morning. Do you have any idea the love of Christ that rests on you? Do you have any idea when you go through your life beating yourself over the back because of your sins, how much you are really rejecting and repudiating the love of Christ? The love of Christ is vast beyond your wildest imagination. It is stronger than you have any idea. It is purer than you can even imagine. It is infinite. You are not going to stop Him from loving you. You may stop Him from being able to bless you. You may stop Him from being able to accomplish His will in you. But whether you realize it or not, and I just mentioned the name, your name, if you're here tonight as a believer in Jesus Christ, your name was written in the eternal records of heaven before the world began. You were an object of the love of God before this world began. And we like to say it's because God looked down through time and saw that you would believe. Well, that is really an infantile perspective, not only of God, but of time. God is not subject to time, you and I are. When God wrote your name in the book, in eternity past, Christ was dying on the cross and paying the penalty for your sins. He had you personally in mind, and you were receiving the invitation of the gospel all at the same time. I don't know how all of that works. I just know from a theological point of view that that is all true. So it's not a matter of God looking down through the corridors of history and saying, oh, that person's going to one day believe. No, he's there because he is not subject to time. Time is something that we can't even comprehend. It's one of the four great limitations on members of the human race. Time, space, matter, and intelligence. You can't break any of those time, space, matter, and intellect. When Christ was resurrected, he was able to function outside of all of them. And that's really beyond our ability to grasp. But coming back to verse 2, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied you. I want you to notice that the phrase be multiplied is an optative. And what an optative means it is, is that it is the wish of the author. The author's wish for you and I is that these three things, once again, another set of three, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied. Would you like to have God's mercy multiplied in your life? I certainly would. Would you like to have God's peace increased in your life? We live in a very troubled time. I don't know if you're troubled. I find myself very troubled in the time in which we're living. And I constantly have to flee to the scripture and flee to what I know about the plan of God to again abide in that place of peace. Jude knew that life is difficult. He had seen his half-brother, some of his closest friends, die for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew that life was difficult. He knew that being a Christian in the ancient world was very unpopular. It could be hazardous to your health. And yet, his wish expressed to us is that mercy and peace and love will expand in our life, but I want to tell you something even more wonderful and more important, and that is that it's not Jude's wish, it's God's wish for you. If you have responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have been sanctified and you are beloved. You have been set apart for a purpose. God has a plan for your life. And His love is on you at all times. You have been called, sanctified, and you're safe. And what that tells me every time we take off on a mission trip, no matter where we're going, and I tell people this all the time, there are no closed areas in this world. People say, well, that area is closed, the gospel. No, it isn't. It's just closed if you're afraid. There are no closed places. I will go anywhere God calls me to go. As long as I know He has opened the door, I am going there for the sake of the gospel message and for the sake of winning people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Why? Because when He gave me my name, when He set me apart for His purpose, when He laid out in eternity past His plan for my life, I am invincible. You are invincible until your task is done. Do you know that the safest place for you to be in this very dangerous, dark, and difficult world is in the center of the plan of God for your life? I fear stepping outside that plan. I fear being in a safe place when the will of God is calling me to a dangerous place. Because that dangerous place, if it's in the will of God, is the only safe place for me to be. So we are called, we are sanctified, we are preserved, we are safe for a purpose. And what is that purpose? That mercy, peace and love may be multiplied in our life. How is that going to happen? Well, I'd love to tell you about it. I can't see the clock back there. I don't know if you're aware, but it's very, very dark. But I believe that it's time. See, I'm still on Arizona time. It's only five o'clock. I'm going to go for three more hours. Go for it. In our next session. I want to talk to you about election from the biblical perspective. And I'm going to have to use marriage terminology. You know what history is? I'll tell you what history is. Here it is. It is a story of the greatest hero who ever walked. It is a story of the greatest battles that have ever been fought. It is a story of the greatest... Bride that has ever been claimed. That's history. When God laid out His plan for history, He laid it out around something that every single one of us, maybe as we get older, maybe as we get a little bit jaded, maybe as we get a little bit hardened to the world, we lose it. But I want to tell you something. History is a romance. The greatest stories are always a romance. G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton said, any story that is a great story must have three things. It must have a hero, it must have a maiden, and it must have a villain. Does history have that? Christ, the hero, the church, the maiden, and Satan, the villain. We're going to see that when we get together in our next session. Father, thank you for your grace. Bless our break. Uh, Let us be refreshed in our fellowship with one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.